Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Money Multiplier Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kessler, and we asked ourselves, do our dollars make sense? So today I am reporting live from Nashville, Tennessee. So you can see behind me, if you're watching on YouTube, the uh, skyline of Nashville downtown. So it's really cool. I kind of like this park around here. Um, I'm here in the van right now. This is not my first time staying uh, right outside Nissan Stadium. So I really like the uh, parking around here. So free parking if it's not on stadium uh, days or uh, game days, I should say. So um, this is my second time staying here overnight. And actually last night was kind of fun because I was walking around and I found some cool new places to explore. So I just love this city. The city kind of has my heart. But uh, today, today's episode and topic, I want to address some of your YouTube comments. So I see y'all commenting and, and a lot of you, you actually reach out to me directly to get some of your questions answered. So keep doing that. You can send me an email, hannah at themoneymultiplier.com and I will address your email and we can even chat on the phone one-on-one -on -one together. But um, I thought it would be fun to bring it as a full episode and go through some of the last uh, topics and, and uh, episodes that have been published and really answer those questions for the community so that everybody can know those answers too. So keep commenting, all right? Because I just want to uh, help y'all understand this concept more and more. So keep commenting and reach out to me for those questions. Um, a few things before we get into it though today. Um, my vlog channel, all right, if you haven't heard, it's up and running live right now. If you go to YouTube and you uh, look up my name, Hannah, spelled the same ways forwards and backwards, Kessler with one S, go on there and you can see the vlog channel and kind of get the scope of what I'm doing when I'm not teaching the infinite banking concept. So you'll see my van adventures, you'll see a lot of cats and Daisy and Monroe's. <laughs> so it's a good time, I'm very excited about that. Um, also, so for my folks in the Gary, Indiana, Phoenix, Arizona, Orlando, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a lot of Florida events coming up, but I have some live events that I'm going to be teaching at. So go to our website, themoneymultiplier.com forward slash events. Uh, with an S at the end, and you can see all of the events of where we're going to be at live or even virtual events. All right, so I know we just got done with our past training, the 22nd uh, training this month in August, and that's a lot of fun. So, thanks for joining us on that uh, adventure. So, okay, let's get into the episode. All right, this first one is from the episode 53 What would I do if I was making 50000 a year? They comment, why not put that money in a policy and then get a loan and pay those bills? Can it be done this way too? So essentially they're asking me, hey Hannah, can I use my policy loans to pay my monthly expenses? You know, we have gone through this before in the past on past episodes, actually kind of when Jonah Dew was joining me. If y'all remember or have been following me since then, y'all have been around the campfire for a long, long time. Shout out to you. But um, here's my response to it. You know, yes, you can. Essentially, you can use policy money to literally use it for anything. Buy a pack of chewing gum, send it to the car insurance people, pay the phone bill people with the policy money. It doesn't matter what you're using the money for, you can literally use the cash value for anything. However, I think there's a better way to use the money inside of the policy. So for me, what I like to do and how I cover my monthly expenses is I will actually use the policy money and then go out there, push it to work for me. I will either go buy my investment to create me more cash flow, or I will take the money and go pay off some big debts. If I can go take the money, clear off some debts to create and free up some of the cash flow I'm sending to third party people, I will do that. And then what I do is when that money circulates back to me, so let's say I am using it for investments, that money circulates back to me, 
and at the beginning of the month, I receive the passive income that comes in, and that's what I'm using to cover my monthly expenses. You know, here's the thing, right? I just think it's a kind of lazy way, all right, just to put it bluntly, I think it's just kind of a lazy way of how you're using the policy money. You know, it's kind of the same thing. All right, should I take out the policy money? And you know, Apple right now, Apple's given a four and a half percent on their savings account, or I could go down to the local bank and get a five and a half percent CD if I go put my money in there. I just think it's lazy ways to use the money. Money is not made just by sitting somewhere, rotting and compounding. You gotta keep it in motion. Take out the money, go push the cash flow somewhere, have that create more cash flow, have it circulate back, then have that pay the monthly expenses. Now, I do agree though. All right, last summer, actually, I was living on the road for a little bit and I racked up a little bit higher than normal credit card bill. So yeah, I dipped into my policies to help cover for that monthly credit card statement. But am I doing that each and every month? Really no, because I have the active income coming in plus the passive that I will use to cover the monthly expenses. And then the leftover money at the end of the month, if I'm not using it, I will just simply push it back to the policy as a safe place to warehouse and keep the money. So I kind of talked about this on an episode not too long ago, but I am going to use the extra cash at the end of the month. If I am not using that money, for investments or maybe some upcoming expenses that I have, then yes, I push it back to the policy to safely warehouse it there. So inside of my regular checking or savings account down at the local bank, I keep no more than three months of overhead expenses. I don't wanna keep my money at the bank. I don't trust the banks. I don't trust them with what they're doing with my capital. So that's why I'm always pushing it and storing it back inside the policy where I have the complete ownership and control of it. All right, let's get into question two. This one is from episode 54, where I talk about the advantages of becoming your own banker. Somebody says, most banks, Boley products, are single premium UL, but it's cash value. Wealth, wealthy are buying whole life and universal life. I agree. Okay, the wealthy are buying life insurance, but let me just be very, very clear on this. The wealthy banks, when this person is talking about Boley, all Boley means is bank-owned life insurance. That's what Boley stands for. And so banks, they go out and they're purchasing whole life policies. That is their tier one asset. If you go to FDIC.gov, you can go fact check me on that. Or if you even go to BauerFinancial.com, Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, BauerFinancial.com, and you can go see all of the banks and how much life insurance that these banks actually own. It's right up underneath there, underneath their tier one capital. But banks, banks are not buying indexed universal products, okay? They're not buying IULs, they're not buying VULs, they're not buying ULs, they're not buying EIGIOs, okay? Banks are not buying those. Here's how I know this. If you have an IUL contract, I want you to walk into the bank and I want you to go see if that bank is going to issue you a loan based off of the cash value that you have in that IUL contract. So here's what I mean. If you have a whole life policy, you can walk into a bank and you can request to have a cash value line of credit. The banker will issue you the loan uh, um, for the cash value that you have in the policy. And simply you're just putting up that collateral of the policy to the bank. There's no better collateral to, to a bank than cash. But if you try to go into a bank and try to get them to issue you a cash value line of credit based off of the universal life or index universal life product that you have, they're not gonna issue it to you. You know why? Because banks aren't buying those products. They are not placing their money based off of 
into the markets and based off of those factors that go up or down that's not within their wheelhouse or their control. They will not collateralize that UL contract that you are trying to ask them to issue you a loan for. It just doesn't happen. Go do it. Try to do it and please prove me wrong. So simply, they're not going to do it just based on the risk and the volatility volatility those UL products really have. Because here's the thing, in, inside of a UL contract, that risk gets transferred back to the policy owner, to the policy owner that's taken on the risk. In a whole life contract, the risk is being transferred back to the insurance company, not the policy owner. So, because here's the biggest catch with UL, IUL products. That risk is being transferred back to them, like I mentioned, and they're being subject to what those market conditions are and the rising cost of insurance each and every year. Here's actually something funny. Somebody I was talking to on the phone this week, they said, okay, Hannah, you know, I met your father. He, he was at um, an event, he was doing the presentation and I really understand this infinite banking concept, but I am doing it with a universal life policy. And here's the thing, inside of this universal life policy, I have a guaranteed floor of 1%. I'm pretty sure he told me. I think it was one or one and a half percent. Let's go with his. Let's just say it's one and a half. Let's go with the higher number. So I have this guaranteed floor of one and a half so that when the insurance company or when the markets take a downturn, I'm never going to lose. No, I, I understand as a consumer that hasn't been in this world for a long time actively practicing this, that you can think that, okay, even in a downturn cycle, I am still going to get this guaranteed interest on my money. Okay, you are, you are contractually getting that one and a half percent guaranteed interest, but here's the factor or the variable that you're not taking into consideration. It's the annual renewal cost of the insurance that you have to pay each and every year that thing keeps getting higher and higher as our as we age that cost of insurance gets higher and thus it gets more expensive as time goes on so and here's how i can prove it to you go into an iul contract a ul a vul any of them go into those those policy contracts and i want you to look at the guaranteed side of that policy look at the guaranteed side and in that guaranteed side i want you to look right around the ages of 65 to 70. when you get into those ages 65 to 70 look at the cash value column and then also look at your death benefit column what starts happening they start going down. You will notice that the guaranteed side starts going down along with the death benefit starts going down. Why? Oh, because you're not making the returns that you're supposed to be within the market and that ongoing rising cost of insurance keeps getting more and more expensive. So what's happening is it's pulling out money from the cash inside of the policy or that side account that should be invested and it's rolling over to pay for that cost of the insurance. If you ever want my help to look at those policies, because even the people that I get on phone calls with me, sometimes y'all will come to me and say, Hannah, I have one of, uh, I have a permanent life insurance policy and I just wanna hop on the phone and I want you to take a look at this thing. And I do. What I want y'all to do is send me an in-force illustration. In-force, I-N-F-O-R-C-E. That in-force illustration will tell us exactly what's going on with the policy right now. How much you're putting in as your premiums, what the cash is growing by, what those death benefit numbers are. And then I will give you my feedback. Hey, if I was standing in your shoes, what would I do with this policy? All right, I will give you that feedback. I do it all day long. 
But here's the thing too, I highly recommend somebody looking over what you already have before you just walk into something new and you just cancel, cancel, cancel um, um, without truly seeing what you have. So, you know, I don't want to fly through a black box. I really want to dissect what's going on. I'm going to probably have to move, aren't I? So send me that in force illustration, okay? I think I'm going to move here in just a second. Stand by. Okay, and we're back. All right, I, I do not record a lot outside, so we're learning some new things. Okay, here's something else I wanna to touch on too. All right, we kinda of talked about you know the volatility risk of what happens in those UL products and what's going on. You know, let's talk about it again, right? Boley, who's the number one purchasers of whole life insurance? It's conventional banks. And if you go back and through history and you kind of look to see what happened. Why did banks start putting money into life insurance? So I read an article where it talks about in the 1980s, the 401k, be, the 401k became widely adopted as a way to replace company provided pensions. Banks looked to permanent life insurance policies as an alternate way to offer benefits and incentives to senior executives and other high-level employees. In fact, at the end of 2020, two-thirds of banks in the U.S. list life insurance as a tier one asset on their balance sheets with a combined cash value of over $182 billion, billion with a B. And here's kind of the two reasons why banks purchase these policies. Okay, so number one, it increased the tax advantages. And then number two, it was less expensive to the employee benefits. And in my personal opinion too, I'm gonna add in a number three. Resources can be used when employee benefits or that, that, that key employee, they pass. So, really what happened is is that banks were because of the tax advantages that came from life insurance because right life insurance is not taxable it grows on a tax-free basis so because of that plus having the liquidity to the money and access to the capital that they can use and it's cheaper than some of those other plans that their employees were uh, on and those benefits. That's what really pivoted banks to start using life insurance as employee benefit vehicles rather than 401ks, IRAs, Roths, and all of that stuff. And my third point I added on to that is, you know, there's a death benefit on that policy. Your 401k doesn't have a death benefit on it. So in the event of a premature death, that bank now is going to receive the payout of the death benefit. And then now they got this lump sum of tax-free windfall that came in so that they can now use it for more business practices or, or use the capital and, and go maybe start even more policies. So that's what banks are doing. And, and here's the thing too. Another question I sometimes get is, well, okay, Hannah, you're telling me that banks are the number one purchasers of life insurance, but who are they putting the policies on? Well, they're putting the policies on their key employees. If you ever go walk into a bank, look at their little name tags and see how many vice presidents there are of that bank. It seems like there's vice presidents of every, station you know you got your vice president of the uh, uh loans department the vice president of the coffee station the vice president who opens up the front door each and every day right they just move them up to that status to be able to get the policy on their body to have that insurable interest and it just makes sense okay i've done an episode on this already how millennial business owners can use policies how they can put it on their key employees employees or their business partners within their business relationships. So it's the same thing. It's just banks are doing it on a higher, larger scale. Okay. Hey, <laughs> I had to move. There, there were mowers outside. I guess today's bowing day. And then uh, the sun was finally came out and it was glaring down on the camera. Camera did not like that. She got a little too hot. So we moved. I'm back in the van right now. 
so okay well let's get back into it so he, here's the thing all, all i was trying to say in my last comment you know i'm just here to really provide the information to you i want you to understand what banks are doing what the elite people are doing and here's the thing we the american people we have just been programmed since day one to be consumers of the central banking cartel all right i know that's a very bold statement but i can only control what i can control and if i can control the banking environment where i'm leaving the dollars who has access to it and i'm protecting it against government loss and others i want to store my hard working earned capital inside of that environment y'all i'm telling you right now this stuff is not hard to understand the biggest thing it's just the mental shift it's just the mental shift from leaning off of the banks and the government and you taking back the control because here's the thing the only person who can mess this stuff up with the policies and your privatized banking system is you and how you use the policy who else do you know better than you right so I think that is all I want to leave on that little comment there for those questions. But um, let's get into number three. Let's keep going. This one is from episode 55 where I talk about the truth behind the numbers. This is actually kind of one of my personal favorite uh, episodes I've ever done. I think it's a very powerful one. But here is what somebody mentioned. I have not been able to wrap my head around insurance being created before the Internal Revenue Service and being exempt from the IRS rule. Yet the IRS has legally created a mech on the amount private American citizens can fund in an individual whole life policy. Let's talk about it, okay? I'm going to link down below this Forbes article and I just want to talk about what happened before section 7702 and the mech law came about uh, because right before the mech law was even here the mech was just created in June of 1988 so before that whole life insurance has been around whole life insurance was even around longer than the tax codes even been here tax codes only been here since 1913 so what happened in a whole life insurance contract before the irs came in with the 7702 in the mech guidelines so let's read about it here's what this forbes article says Section 7702 of the U.S. Internal Revenue Code created the 7702 plan regarding how the tax code is applied to the cash value in a life insurance policy. Before the enactment of 7702, there were almost no tax considerations to worry about on the cash value of a policy. You could place as much money as you wanted in a life insurance contract. You would have the advantage of a death benefit that went to beneficiaries tax-free, as well as avoiding many taxes on the growth of the policy. The reason for the enactment of 7702, or the MEC status, is that some insurance companies took advantage of the legal loopholes at the time and created a class of policies that had a major investment feature. Policies could grow faster than ever before from the investment side of the contract and still avoid taxes on the accumulated value. Some life insurance companies aggressively marked life insurance as an investment vehicle with no more than a nod to the actual life insurance component. So high level, really, the government didn't want people buying life insurance and really using it for how we want to use it right now. The amazing, awesome life benefits that a life insurance contract comes with. 
So they created this law because they saw a lot of the elite and wealthy individuals, they were dumping in a boatload of money inside of these life insurance contracts. They could put however much in that they absolutely wanted to, and there would be no tax consequences to them. So Uncle Sam started knocking on the door saying, well, hey, we kind of want a little cut of that. That's a little loophole there. We don't want you going around that loophole. So Section 7702 defined what a life insurance policy was. Gone were policies that didn't fit the IRS's definition. There were insurance companies that welcomed this new law because the industry as a whole didn't want life insurance to be looked at as a place to avoid taxes. While Section 7702 eliminated investment-heavy policies, it did not negate using whole life policies as a cornerstone of someone's financial planning, which they have been a part of for decades. Y'all, just right there, this stuff has been around for a long, 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 long time. We have just been conformed to the big major gurus that are out there. Life insurance and whole life policies, that is the worst investment that you can ever make. I totally agree with you. Life insurance is not the investment. Your life insurance policy is just to safely warehouse, protect the money with tax advantages, with still having liquidity to it, to then go buy your investment. Go pay your tax bill. Go buy the vacations. Go put the down payment on the house. Go send the kids to college. Go buy the airline tickets. Do you see where I'm going with this? Y'all, this stuff has been around for so long. And before the Section 7702, people were doing it, just dumping in money left and right. Do you see why Uncle Sam created this now? He wanted a cut. He wanted his cut. And they want to make sure that life insurance is there for life insurance reasons and the death benefit reasons. So here's something else. I did a little bit of more digging. I actually found, and I'm going to link this down below, this is all free knowledge that I just found on Google, this document here, it really explains the actuaries of the company and how they define that MEC line. Remember, MEC just stands for Modified Endowment Contract. So, and, and that is the, the imaginary line. Okay, so just recap for maybe some of my newer folks listening. That MEC line is an imaginary line throughout all policies, and we just don't want to go over this imaginary line, or AKA overstuff the policy. Because if we do, then the government now is going to start looking at our policy as an investment, and then now they're going to start taxing us on it, and we don't want that. So, here, the actuaries. Here's a little background. The code defines a life insurance contract in the section 7702. Before these sections of code apply, the contract must satisfy the requirements for life insurance under applicable law. Where the contract is issued, including satisfaction of insurable interest requirements. When these criteria are met, the Section 7702 applies and determines whether or not the contract is treated as life insurance for federal tax purposes. The tax advantages treatment of a life insurance has been a part of the code, but the first code-based actuarial test arose in 1982 with the, indact with the indactment of Section 101. The test did not apply to contracts with scheduled fixed premiums. Section 7702 was enacted in 1984 to impose a tax definition for life insurance for all life insurance co contracts, regardless of their premium structure. After the 1984 enact enactment of section 7702 so high level section 7702 came out in 84 but the mech law was created in 1988 so 
after the 1984 enactment of 7702, the first substantial revision to the income tax treatment of life insurance was made by the Technical and Miscellaneous Revenue Act of 1988, which imposed new reasonable mortality and expense charge rules and enacted Section 7702A defining a modified endowment contract. This new section 7702A generally applied to contracts entered into on or after June 21st of 1988. A MEC is still life insurance in that death benefit proceeds generally are tax exempt and the inside buildup is tax deferred until there is a distribution, such as a policyholder dividend or a partial surrender. So this law came about in 88. And again, they created it because they wanted to make sure that people were not using it for the loopholes of the tax advantages. If you do mech a policy, let's kind of talk about this. All right. So, you know, if you mech a contract, it's not the end of the world, right? Actually, in some of the companies that we work with, one time Pops even tried to purposely mech his policy. And the insurance company sent him a letter back saying, hey, Brent, um, you told us you didn't want to make this contract. So if you really want this contract to turn into a modified endowment contract, sign your name right here and send us back this letter. But if not, here's a check and the return of the amount of funds that we so simply could not hold. So the insurance companies that we work with, they are always there looking out for our best interests. But even if your policy becomes a mech, it's not the end of the world. So here's what happens. All distributions that occur under a mech are considered gains first and return of premiums. Thereafter, an a 10% additional tax will typically apply if gains are distributed prior to the taxpayer's age 59 and a half. In addition, under a MEC, loans are treated as distributions. This means that a loan will result in a taxable distribution to the extent there is a gain in the contract. So again, it's just you paying the, the gains. You kept paying the taxes on the gains when you take out of that policy. Almost honestly, it's almost like it's treated like a 401k or an IRA. That, that's really the rules that apply here to the life insurance if you do MEC that contract. Okay. Let's move on. This next one is from episode 57. IBC from beginning to end. Somebody comments, how are the withdrawals tax-free after withdrawing the 150,000 of premium payments? It could be done with tax-free loans with a similar effect. If you don't pay the loans back, the interest will eat up the cash value, but it's probably better than the tax hit on the withdrawals. Hear me out. This comment is really what led me to creating this episode here. I realized a goofy mistake that I made in this video. Now, in my defense though, here's where my lingo and my words got mixed up. If you open Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, page 46 and 47, okay? Um, that week when I created that podcast, um, my team and I, my application team, we actually have a, a monthly book review that we do each month going through Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And so for this month, it was on the charts in Nelson's book, 46 and 47, of how Nelson is using, he's physically withdrawing the dividends to go out, the, the, the dividends and the cash values to go out there and purchase his cars in the upcoming years. And so I was just so honed in on withdrawals that I forgot a big missing component when I was recording this video. Video. So let's be totally clear here. Taxes on the policy. 
Yes, during the passive retirement years of our life, you can take out withdrawals. Actually, at any point in the policy's life, you can take out withdrawals. However, here's what happens when, when we're taking out withdrawals. When we take out withdrawals, we're physically withdrawing the money out. And so thus we're stopping the compounding on the money and we are surrendering a, po a portion of our death benefit. In the passive years of our life, withdrawals can be a really, really great idea if we're gonna use this for supplementing income for those retirement stages. How we can take out tax-free withdrawals is we can withdrawal up to the cost basis of our policy. So for instance, if I put in $150,000 as premium deposits into that policy, I can withdraw tax-free $150,000. I cannot put in 150 of premium and then withdrawal 200,000. I'm going to be taxed on the extra 50,000 that I've withdrawed from that policy. So what we do is we just simply switch from taking out withdrawals to now we take out loans from the policy. And now we're living off of the policy tax-free loans that's coming out to fund our retirement lifestyle. So actually, I kind of even asked uh, one of my mentors this question. So his name is Tim Urich. He has been around Nelson. He's one of Nelson's first students. Um, some of y'all may have saw him on a past Wealth Wednesday webinar that Chris Noggle hosted. But Tim has been in the life insurance industry for about 30 plus years. He's been working alongside Nelson for 25 of those years. And one of the questions I asked Tim, because, you know, Nelson, um, he, he graduated. He's no longer here with us. I said, you know, Tim, why does Nelson take out withdrawals? Why does he always talk in his book about taking out, uh, taking out withdrawals from the policy, like in his examples here in page 46 and 47? And you know what his response was? He goes, well, I've asked Nelson this. I've talked extensively with Nelson about why he's showing withdrawals and not loans. And Nelson really gave me the response that, and here's the thing too, Nelson, he, most times he won't answer the question. He'll kind of just reply back in a form of a riddle and have you think for yourself. But high level is, is that Nelson didn't want the traditional American family to get hung up in the word of alone. In the traditional sense, how we've been brought up since a young age and just taught about the banking business in our life is, is that when we take out loans from other entities, that is a payment. It's a debt. It's an expense. And if I don't pay back that loan, I'm going to get penalized in some way. And so Nelson didn't want people getting hung up in the word loan because a loan, when we're talking about the infinite banking concept and privatized banking, I love loans, right? We are becoming our own banker. What, how does a bank turn their liabilities, their deposits into assets. They loan it out. Banks are in the lending business. And so that's where we have to get our mindset shifted at is, is that I love policy loans because this is me just taking that capital out there to go push it even harder to work for me. So you know, so in that in that video, I do agree. I goofed up with saying the word uh, tax-free withdrawals. Now you can you can remember you can withdraw up to the up to the cost basis of the policy, the premium deposit that you put in. But every time after that, now we just start taking out tax-free loans from the policy. Also. Go look at Nelson's book, page 46 and 47. I really want you to study those pages and see what Nelson is talking about when he's using the policy to fund his cars during the lifetime in that example. Um, but again, that's where my, my goofiness came from. And, and that's why I really led to making this video because I want to give you all the clear cut information when it's revolving around this topic. All right, next one.
This is from episode 60, Money Mindset and Policy Loans. How do you get more than one policy and meet the annual premium? Well, I kind of talk about this on a past episode too, where what I'm doing is how I keep building my banking system is, is that I'm funneling my leftover money at the end of the month after the expenses get paid. What is the leftover money that I'm keeping? And that leftover take home money that doesn't go to my cost of living, that's what's getting funneled into the policy. So really when you're expanding the banking system, your mindset should, shouldn't be, oh my gosh, how am I going to make this annual premium? No, no, no. And again, you don't have to do an annual premium. You can do monthly, you could do quarterly, twice a year, or annually. And you can always switch back and forth between those modes too. Okay, so let's say you start the policy on a monthly basis and you want to switch it to quarterly or semi-annually or whatever. You can do that. You can do that. So with this... I know I can make my ongoing premiums because all it's doing is matching up with my net cash flow left over after expenses. So from there, I just keep building the banking system because hopefully as time goes on, we're making more money, income is rising, assets are rising, that I have a need to want to warehouse this money somewhere. And if you really follow us, you know that money is made in the motion of it. Here's number two on this episode that I say that. So take the policy cash back values you can just let it sit in the policy if you want but what i want you to do is i want you to take that money and i want you to go and deploy it into active cash flowing investments so that you're creating more cash flow and creating more wealth for you and your family now here's the fun thing too even though you set your policy let's just make believe you say hannah i want to do 12,000 a year into my policy. That's a thousand dollars a month. I just want to do 12,000 yearly premium right now. Even though you set your policy at that 12,000 a year, that is not the minimum to keep it alive and active. If you ever really needed to, because I get it, we go through windfalls, we go through downfalls, financial upswings, financial downswings. So if you ever needed to, you can lower that premium down anywhere from 60 to 90% if needed. So easy number example, if I put in $12,000 that first year and then next year rolls around and I got to pay my premium and I call my mentor up and I say, yo, shit just hit the fan right now. I do not have this $12,000 of premium. What are my options? you can always lower the premium. So on a 12,000 a year, you can lower it as low as $4,800. So my first question back to you, if I was your mentor, I would say, okay, well, let's lower the premium for right now. $4,800, can we do that? You say, no, Hannah, I can't do the 4,800. I don't have that right now. Okay, well, let's cut it up into monthly premiums. 4,800 divided by 12, 400 bucks a month. Can you do that? You say, no, Hannah, I don't even have the $400 a month. I can't do that. Okay, well, is there cash in the policy that can help pay for premium? So there, again, there's so many different options and flexibilities that come with the policy and the premiums that you can make changes to. But... The biggest thing is, is that the only person who can really mess this stuff up is you, again, and how you use the policy. Who do you know better than you? So walking into this, what you're really committing to is the premium deposit that you want to put into the policy because you get to determine what that premium deposit is and just understanding that, hey, when I take out policy loans, I'm going to have a interest that's charged to me from the insurance company. It's a simple annual interest when I take out that policy loan money. So at the end of the year, I just send that interest into the insurance company, out of pocket money that gets sent to them. And then I just keep using my policy loan money doing XYZ business ventures that I'm doing. Okay. Let's move on. Episode 61, 
this this one is the how millennial business owners can use their policies somebody is asking can you demonstrate on a future video how to guarantee an employee a monthly income for a policy for uh, um, retirement income for my employee if we add additional policies we will have to fund the income to meet the premium what do you know when when do you know it's time to add another policy okay so with this one they're asking like basically how do you structure the employee benefits within a policy i will do a video on that okay so yep i will definitely get working on that and that will come out here this year um but essentially all it is is just contract law right i mean all you're essentially doing is just creating like um, not a promissory note that wouldn't be the right word but you're creating an agreement between you and your employee saying hey doc is thinking about the chiropractic days when dad was a chiropractor hey doc if you're with me for 15 years or longer when you reach age 65 I promise that I'll start paying you a guaranteed income of $2,000 a month until you are age 95. So for the next 30 years, I'll be paying you that $2,000 a month. So we, basically, we just kind of have to work the policy backwards. And I do this all the time. So all I got to do is just go in there, figure out based on that person, their age, where they're at right now, if I structure this thing, how much premium do I got to plug into this policy to ensure that, hey, when this individual is 65 years old, we have a guaranteed cash accumulation of $24,000 plus each and every year so that we're taking that out and we're funding for that employee's retirement. There are ways you can do that. So yes, I will create a video on that coming up here soon. And when do we know it, when it, we're ready to start another policy? You will know when you're ready. You will max out your existing policy contracts. You'll have more cash inside of the bank that's not doing anything. And you will say, hey, I want to lean off the banks. I don't want to keep my money in the bank. That FDIC bullcrap, yeah, I don't trust that stuff. So I want to take this capital and I want to go store it with inside of my policies. And at that time, you will know when you're ready to start more policies because you can't just go into an existing contract and quote unquote increase the premium. What you'll do is that, yeah, you'll have some wiggle room that you can throw in some extra dump-ins into that contract, but there will come a time where you wanna keep dumping in more and more money and you can't without causing the mech status or hitting that those taxation guidelines. So then that's when you would open up a second policy. So y'all, if you're not familiar with us at the Money Multiplier, I mean, really, that's why we have the mapping and the implementation team. I don't want to just give you the policy, sail away and say, all right, good luck. Hopefully your floaties are inflated as I chuck you into the deep end of the swimming pool, right? You don't want that. You want the guidance. You want the community behind you. And that's why the mapping team is there to help you implement and use your new banking system. Because here's my philosophy. If you can really understand the power of privatized banking, you'll quickly understand that, oh my gosh, Hannah, I want all of my income funneling through my policy. And hopefully you like me enough that you come back wanting to start more policies with me. You'll start referring your friends, colleagues, and coworkers, and it's just a win-win for everybody. So that's how we're set up over here. And there's no charges that we have for the mapping and the implementation team. It's just really there to help you use and incorporate this new system in your life. So high level, you will know when you're ready to start more policies because you've maxed out the existing contracts, you got more money left over, and you wanna funnel that through policy premium. Last one here. We'll end it on this note. Keep writing in your questions to me. I love this stuff. Hopefully this is helpful. But here's the last one. This is from the same episode, uh, uh, how millennial business owners can use their policies. 
please help me to convince my son to start the process of converting his IUL. I can. And I know this individual who left this comment. I know him very well. He, he, he's a member at the Money Multiplier. He, act, he actively has his whole life policies that he's using. So here's my feedback to you. Share the resources. Reach out to me if you want my IUL versus whole life resources where we just get into the facts. Send me an email and I will send you those. We got, we got about four or five different YouTube videos diving into the differences between an IUL and a whole life. And let me say this too, okay? There is no silver bullet out there. I say this all the time, but I really want to drive it home right now. Nobody is the same. Everybody's in different financial positions and different stages of their life. And so in my opinion, there's no one way to live and walk this life here on this planet. An IUL contract, in my opinion, is an investment strategy. An investment, in my definition, is it can go up and it can go down. It can lose value. The whole life policy, again, this is not your investment. It cannot go down. It cannot lose money. It is classified as an appreciating asset. It can only go up. And here's the biggest thing too, okay? You know how like on the forefront, I was kind of talking about like cost of insurance, the rising cost of insurance in an IUL contract or ULs as time goes on. Why kind of like the big gurus like Dave Ramsey is always saying, you know, hey, don't put your money into that stupid life insurance policy. It's just way too expensive. It's just way too costly. You don't want to do that. Go buy term and invest the difference. Well, here's why. Inside of a whole life contract, that cost of insurance is fixed. It's fixed for the life of the policy. It can never go up and it's never going to go down. So the insurance company is really setting that cost of the insurance now at the start of the contract and it's never going to increase. It's set in stone at where it's at. And so that's why a lot of people out there, they say, well, hey, why would I buy that stupid life and that whole life policy when I could go buy term and it'd just be, you know, 80% cheaper. I'd rather go do that. I, and I agree with you. Term can make sense in some scenarios, but you're not understanding. Cost is only an issue in the absence of value. And you're not understanding the value of what a whole life insurance policy with a mutually owned company that's designed for this high cash value banking is all about you're missing the value aspect of it so with this person and all of my listeners listening right now if you want those IUL versus whole life resources send me an email hannah at the and I will send you out those resources and you can really dive into the other curriculum that we have over those concepts or topics I should say so as of now, that is all the questions that I uh, grabbed out from the different videos. And thanks for bearing with me. As y'all know, I'm on the road. Hopefully it was kind of fun this episode though. I know I was like sitting in the park and then I came back here in the van and things like that. But I really have a good time doing these and I hope hopefully you're finding some value and getting some education out of them. And um, as always, you know, rate the podcast, give us five stars, subscribe to the YouTube, give my Facebook, Instagram, TikTok a follow out there. It's my first name, Hannah underscore Kessler. And um, until next time, I just want you to ask yourselves, do your dollars make sense? I'll see you then. Bye, everybody.